Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. can grab a seat. As we have been uh, working through Genesis, the life of Joseph, we started it very early on talking about this being the story of God. This is God's story that he is telling us through scripture to show us more of who he is and what he's doing and what he's about. And um, periodically it's going to make sense because of where we are in the story to just kind of pause, zoom out for a second and kind of look at how this section, how this part reminds us of the story of God. We said from the very beginning that God is writing a story and that we will flourish regardless of our circumstances when we find ourselves in his story, in this story of God. And where we are in the life of Joseph is, yes, last week we just talked about how he had uh, finally been pulled out of the pit because Pharaoh had these two dreams. And in these two dreams, Joseph was able to interpret them because of God in Joseph. And he was able to tell them um, what would happen. And in this moment, in this moment, Pharaoh takes Joseph and puts him into position. And everything in Joseph's story, everything that was, um, would have been broken in Joseph's life, everything except for his relationship with his brothers, in this one moment seems to be established and redeemed. We see that he is, uh, he's given, uh, he's no longer a slave. He's He gets married, he's given a job, an authority. Every single thing that was broken in Joseph's life comes to this redemptive moment where everything kind of seems to happen. You uh, Think about it this way. The, the two dreams that Joseph had originally with his brothers is what lands him in being sold off into slavery. And then he has, and then Pharaoh has two dreams. And this is what brings Joseph to position as second to him. The the clothe, the, the, the robe of many colors that the brothers hated him, him for is, is stripped of him and, and goat's blood is thrown on it and, and they, they take it to their dad and say, is this, is this your son's robe? And, and he believes his, his son is dead and that clothing becomes kind of a, a, a thorn in Joseph's side. Even the robe he's given while in Potiphar's house is stripped from him by Potiphar's wife and she says, this is the robe of the man that tried to rape me. And so, so clothing has this brokenness in Joseph's life, yet we see him standing before Pharaoh last week where Pharaoh clothes him in fine linen, fine linen, the nicest of clothing, the signet ring, the gold chain. So, so even that seems to be redeemed. The, there's, this is a, kind of the fourth house that Joseph finds himself in. The first house was the house it, with his father where he's favored as the, as the 12th son, as a, as a young, young brother. He's favored, and most of the brothers believe that he is going to be the one that's going to get the first, um, the birthright, the first uh, the birthright of inheritance. And so, so he gets put in charge of that house, but because he's kind of just a favorite child, and then he gets sold off in slavery. And then he gets sold to Potiphar and gets put in charge of that house as a slave, and then gets wrongly accused of rape and imprisoned. And in prison, he gets placed in charge of prison. And so you see all these homes of his where he's placed in, in charge. But then right here now, Pharaoh says, you will take place and second only to me in my house. And so even his home is now redeemed. It's not just something he gets as a bratty teenager and, and, and a favorite. He's, he's in, in Pharaoh's mind, seemingly the wise and understanding and the one that could do it. And so 
even that's redeemed. The first time he rides in a chariot that we're told of in Scripture, he's being carted off as a victim of being sold into slavery to Egypt. And then the second time now he's in a chariot, he's being hauled around behind Pharaoh's chariot and being told, all the people being told to bow down to him. So it looks like every single part of Joseph's life, again, except for his brothers, but spoiler alert, that does happen just later, okay? Um, he, he gets, everything seems to be redeemed. And the reason why I wanted to, to, to highlight that is just stop for a moment, is that all the way back at Genesis 3.15, when, when Adam and Eve reject the kingdom of God, being the people of God and the place of God with the, with the authority of God, when they reject that in sin, since then we have seen God in Genesis 3.15 make the promise of bringing about his redemptive purposes through his kingdom. And then we have woven through Scripture, and you'll have to go back and listen to it. We talked about all the different covenants that have brought us all the way to Jesus where he's redeeming a people through his blood on a cross. And so we see in this story, when we zoom out for just a moment, we see that Joseph is just a part of God's story, a, a part of God doing something to establish some people that he cares deeply about, a part of his kingdom, his redemptive plan. Joseph's life, we know that God has used Joseph to keep his his family, his people alive because the, the famine was so severe. So God, in his sovereign plan, sent Joseph through means of slavery and sold and, and all these other things into a pit only to be standing in front of Pharaoh so that Joseph, with God's wisdom, could save even God's people. So you can see God's plan working out. One scholar says it this way, God is the prime mover of the events. Joseph is the faithful servant in the center of the narrative and Pharaoh is the potential antagonist who becomes the dormant agent of God's sovereignty. The unit as a whole teaches that God sovereignly controls the destinies of nations to protect and provide for his covenant people. See, not only does God guarantee that the king will come, but he overcomes evil to do so, to keep the, the, the line of, to bring us to the line of David, which brings us to the Messiah, to the Christ that was promised all the way back in the garden when the fall happened. It's important for us to remember that this is happening. Joseph is a display. Look at this. In, in this time in history, Joseph is a display of two parts. If you just zoom out for a second. He's a display of the Exodus story, right? In, the, in that he has, he, has a, he has been enslaved in Egypt and brought out of slavery from Egypt into position. But he also, even beyond that, is an archetype of Jesus, as one scholar says, who endured the pit of the cross and came out in charge of everything and everything thrived in his care. And so it could, it could end here in our minds, like redemptive plan, God creates people. The problem is, again, we know if we zoom out that this isn't the place of God. Egypt is, is, is still exile. It's still not a part of the people of God, and we're still awaiting that king. Joseph very much is a type of a king. He's second to Pharaoh as Jesus is second to God. But again, it's just to point us back to God is doing something. Pay attention to his story. Pay attention to where he's at. This is, again, a reminder that God's redemptive plans are being accomplished, regardless of what it may look like. And so as we dig into the story of today, I just wanted us to pause and be reminded of the story of God that's being written so that when we zoom in, we don't miss what God is doing all the way through. As we zoom in again, uh, verse 46 picks up this way. It says, Joseph was 30 years old when when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Okay, so 
Let's, let's pause for one second. Joseph's 30 years old. So this is how we know that he spent 13 years, 17 years old when he's taken from his homeland and sold into slavery, 30 years old when he's standing before the Pharaoh being put into position. So that's the, that's the, that's the time, the 13 years of slavery that he's spent, whether it was in Potiphar's house or in the pit. And then he goes on and says in verse, verse 47, during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. Again, this was really brilliant. Every theologian stops to, to think about this. Really brilliant. Many, many different superpowers over history didn't do this. And this is brilliant. Pharaoh taxes his people. And instead of taking all of it and bringing it back to Pharaoh's presence, he sets up stronghold safeguards in their towns So the people that are giving extra food can see the food in their town. They don't see it disappearing from them. This was a really brilliant thing that God had Joseph do. Um, he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And verse 49, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. The word abundance there is, is, is the picture, the image that would be used of grabbing grain and not being able to hold it because it's just falling out of your hands. There's just so much more. And, and that's the picture they're saying in these storehouses. It's so full that there's no more room in the storehouses. It's not even worth counting. We can't step in there to count the abundance. This is to give the picture that it is ridiculously fruitful, better than it's ever been in, in any history past. This would be the time when the farmers would be like, I've never seen a crop like this. Like this would have really been amazing for everyone in every situation. And so you would assume that this is the moment. This is where finally Joseph will go off the rails, right? This, this kind of seems like it's the perfect time for Joseph to make his massive mistakes. Like he, he did well in affliction. He, you know, he, he struggled through, through slavery, but he seemed to honor God. And it seems like right now, now Joseph has a wife. He's got position. He's got power. He's got money. He's got all sorts of slave for him now. It seems like this would be the time that Joseph would stop living for the Lord and start living for himself. That would make sense to most of us. In fact, if, if, if we're honest, that's a lot of times how it happens in our lives. We, we tend to, to draw near to God in, in, in trouble and, try and, and struggle, which is good, and, that's, and we should do that. But then when we get freed from that trouble, we tend to distance ourselves from God. Look at what Joseph does. He, he does something very common to what we saw of him last week, but very uncommon to most of us if we're honest in our life. And Joseph stored up for grain. Okay, verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Okay, so this is the wife that, that Joseph has been given by Pharaoh. And then Joseph was given a name that we don't know what it really means, but a, an Egyptian name that we never see him actually called after this or other than when it was said it was given to him. Most likely what Pharaoh's doing in this situation is Again, blessing in this day and age was descendants. Fruit, fruitful, like fruitful and multiply. Like this was the idea of blessing. You had kids to, to secure your future. And, and this, was a, this was a blessing. But, but Pharaoh is trying to make Joseph probably look as Egyptian as possible by clothing him in Egyptian clothing, by giving him an Egyptian name, by giving him an Egyptian wife, because that would have probably mitigated some of the potential struggle of why is this Hebrew person telling us what to do? And so here we see Joseph now has children from being in the pit alone to having a wife and now having 
children. And the reason why I paused here is because we see Joseph's heart in the naming of his children. First off, a couple things that we need to know about his wife. His wife was a a daughter of a priest to one of the pagan gods. And so most scholars seem to believe that Joseph was okay with marrying this woman because we haven't seen the, the laws come later on about that way or the issues in that, but also because she seemed to be susceptible or willing, and there is some understanding that the people in Egypt at this time would have been open to the idea of Yahweh or a God in this situation. All we know is that Joseph lives like another 80 years She's the only woman in his life, which is saying a lot for his family. Have you seen his family's like, background? Like they, they do not do that well. It's the only woman he stays married to. He never marries anyone else. We never hear anything else about Joseph with any other woman. So it seems, by all intents and purposes, that they have a healthy marriage. So he has these two kids, and this is where I wanted to, to lean in. Joseph called the name, verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Okay, so there's a couple things. These, these names that Joseph give his kids shows us the mindset of Joseph in this time. Okay, so again, if I were going to name my children and I wanted my, the names of those children to be reminded of something I had in the past, I'd be like, Judah is stupid or Reuben's a punk, right? Like some name, what's the Hebrew for that so I can do this, right? Like some way to remind people that they're terrible and I'm in a better place, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he says literally, the first son he names Manasseh, which means he who makes forget. It, it actually sounds like the Hebrew word. Again, something to be thinking about here is Joseph names his half Egyptian sons Hebrew names in an Egyptian town. This is just proof that we as the reader can look that Joseph is, is choosing to follow, to stay surrendered to Yahweh, to God, to stay true to who his God is, not the gods of the land he's in. And so he, he calls him Manasseh, which means Joseph forgets. Joseph explains the name as a pun, commenting on his own experience, and changes it from he makes me forget to God has made me forget, verse 51. And one scholar says it this way. He says, forgetting and signifying that God has caused Joseph to forget all the long years of suffering and rejection he had endured. Not in the sense, and this is important, not in the sense that he had no memory of them, but rather that the bitterness had been removed. Joseph could now see, as he later told his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, that all of his troubles had been allowed by God for his own good and for his family's ultimate deliverance. Now, now look at this. This is important. What is, what is he doing? He's saying the very first child he's having, he's naming, saying, God has removed from me the bitterness that I have had. I'm, I'm, choos- I'm forgetting. I'm choosing to not look on that anymore. And he says, all of my troubles, he's literally speaking of his slavery and everything else, his sorrow arising from abduction and imprisonment. And he's saying, God has made me forget. Look, look what he's doing. He's giving all the glory to God. He's not saying, I finally grew up and I became humble enough to deal with it. No, he's saying, God has removed from me bitterness. He has caused me to forget all of my father's house. It's not, not a forget I want nothing to do it. He's saying forget all the sorrow that comes from the pain of being sold into slavery those 13 years ago. Joseph, in, in a moment, is, is naming his firstborn child as a reminder to give God the glory for his circumstances he's in right at that moment. God has made me forget the strife, the sibling struggle, the Egyptian slavery. He has, he, has, he has caused me to not be bitter. He's giving God the glory, just like he did when he stood before the Pharaoh. He said, do you want to interpret dream? No, not me, but God can. 
God's going to do this. Let God do this. Let you do this, Pharaoh, because of what God has done. He's continuing to walk out the humility we talked about last week. But in this situation, now look what he's doing. He has the humility to say, look, God has done it. God's the one that saw me through those things. This is finally bringing the truth that we saw of the, and the Lord was with him in Potiphar's house. And the Lord was with him in prison. We're seeing that work out in Joseph's heart right now where he says, my firstborn son, every time I call his name, I will be reminded that God has removed from me bitterness of my past. Every time I call his name, that's what I'll be reminded of. Every time someone says, what does Manasseh mean? Which in, in, a, in Egypt probably happened pretty regularly because it was Hebrew. What's your name mean? God has made my dad forget his sorrows. God has made, Yahweh has made my dad not be bitter. Think about how profound that is. He gives God the glory and the honor in the naming of his kids. Second name is Ephraim. It's a pun to bear fruit. So Joseph says it this way. He says, God has made me fruitful, verse 52. So though Manasseh has a negative connotation, Ephraim is positive in tone. Now what's interesting is, again, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful was the, the epitome of blessing from Yahweh. All the Hebrews believe that. And many pagan gods were in place for fertility and everything else because the blessing came from heirs. That carried on the family tribe name and all those things. Joseph actually names his second son uh, be fruitful, <laughs> which is funny because he only has two. And, and in this day and age, two was not very fruitful. It's like kind of fruitful. It's like fruitful light. <laughs> what does he do, though? He says, he's made me fruitful. And then he, go, he adds to it, in the land of my suffering. Guys, this just reeks of redemption. Both of his kids' names are names. One of, I will, God has removed from me bitterness, and the other is, God has made me fruitful in my land of suffering. Not only did God undo all of the hardship, but in the blessing, he's also brought about more blessing. And this brings me to what I wanted to talk to you guys about today. It's a really practical thing that I think we need to learn in this text. It's this idea of faithfulness in years of plenty. See, because we talked last week about the character development that had to happen. Like Joseph obviously displayed, because God was with him, competence. He was in charge of Potiphar's house very quickly. He was in charge of the jail very quickly. Like he, 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 he displayed a confident individual that people saw them capable of doing much through. And so he obviously displayed that. But he needed some kind of character development. And we saw that in last week when, when Pharaoh gives him the, every opportunity to leverage himself and get whatever he wants. And all Joseph does is says, God, 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 God. Uh, one scholar says it this way. If divine grace was needed in the time of his affliction, much more was, much more was it needed in the moment of prosperity. If ever Joseph needed protection, it was at this time his self-possession and his perfect accommodations to his new surroundings could only have come through absolute dependence upon God. Prosperity, therefore, made no difference to him. He was the same Joseph that he had been in the days of adversity. He acknowledged God's hand and goodness and thereby proved that he had learned some of the deepest lessons in life in the school of discipline. This is, this is what I want to talk about, is the idea of us remembering or being faithful to God in, in times of plenty. But to do so, we've got to define plenty. Because, I mean, who here would raise their hand and say, I have everything I need. I have plenty of everything in my life, always. 
that most of us won't because we always want a little more of something. And it's not bad in and of itself. But now think about this. In, in, in our day and age, most of the people sitting in this room, most of you have a home over your head, <laughs> know where your next meal is coming from. Okay, well, then you would say someone that is homeless would say that you have plenty and they have less. And then look at our, our homeless individuals here that have a really hard life and hard living, but then picture someone who's homeless in a developing nation. They would say that they have plenty. Do you see what I'm working at? Is that there's always someone that can say you have plenty. And by someone, I mean there's usually someones that can say you have plenty. So the issue isn't when are we plenty enough and then let's be faithful to God when we've got plenty enough. Like I think there is, like Paul says, being content in all things. But the, my, my point I'm making is that most of us want a little bit more of everything. A little bit more money, a little bit more comfort, a little bit more vacation, a little bit more sleep. If you're young parents, and I, I hear that, right? A little more, a little more, a little more. And rarely, rarely are we like, that is plenty. In fact, we work tirelessly to have what we believe would be plenty for the last 20-ish years of our life. See, this, this idea of plenty is that I would argue and contend and not to make light or be trite with any of your positions or your struggles, that all of us have plenty of something and probably have plenty of lots of somethings. And yes, we may be lacking in others and we may be needing in or wanting in others, but the issue isn't, isn't should we be plenty in all of them? The issue is, can we remain faithful and remember God in plenty, whether that's relational plenty, whether that's in, in your familial plenty, financial plenty, educational plenty, <laughs> retirement plenty? Like, are, are we going to remain faithful in that? Because the character of Joseph, again, we can't, we can't idolize Joseph because Joseph himself was like, it's not me, it's God. And just in case you're wondering, let me name my children to show you what God has done in my life, not what I've done. Can we acknowledge that? See, our bent towards pride, like we talked about last week, is a coming out of the pit and being like, okay, cool, thanks, God. I got it from here. I'll take it from here. I get the honor of walking with many people through tumultuous seasons, and I am always amazed and encouraged by the willingness of people's desire to press deeply into the Lord and community through affliction and turmoil. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see, but I, I can't tell you how often those same people that, that, that strive so hard to be connected to God through, tr through trial disappear after the trial's gone. I've walked many people, and again, I, I, it's an honor. It's, I believe it's what shepherds are called to do. It's hard to walk many people through the valley only to see them get to the hillside and be gone. And I think, again, this is, this is just a propensity for us. Many of us will, many people, it's obvious, many people will abandon God when it gets hard. We've, we've seen that. We've probably all done that ourselves. But what I want to contend with us, church, today is that many of us abandon God when it's not difficult. We, we kind of we muscle up. We kind of, I got this from here. I can, I can do this. I can take this stage. I'll parent this way. I'll do this thing. I'll get this, re this raise at this job. I, 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 I. And Joseph, in the time of plenty, when any moment he could have said, after doing my 13 years time, I finally got my two feet on the ground and I could do something. And all he says is, God made me forget and God made me fruitful. 
He stands in that position of humility and stays with God. We all do this. We want from him. We want from God, so we serve him. We give more. We, we do these things in hopes that like, if we can just do the right combination, he'll give us something. And then when we get that which we want in that moment, we abandon him like he's some vending machine. Like grace is some transaction. We do this on a regular basis. Another way, good way to understand if this is something we're doing is look at our finances. Yeah, I know I said finances in church, and I'm not supposed to do that because that's, that's triggering. I'm sorry, okay? <laughs> are, you, are you storing up for yourself? Good. I can point to scriptures that talk about storing up for yourself. But you can also go to Jesus' teaching talking about storing up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust no thief destroy. Is it possible that the plenty you have financially isn't so that you can be more comfortable, but so that you can do more with the kingdom of God? Is, is, that, is that even a possibility for us? And, and I get it. Many of us are like, yeah, yeah, but I'm not plenty like so-and-so. Well, then just turn and look the other way because there's plenty of people looking at you saying they're not plenty like you. Do you see the, the, the trick that we can get ourselves in? You want to see if this plays out. A really good barometer is in our finances. Are you generous? Not so people will know you're generous because that is, that is letting your left hand know what your right hand does. It does no good. But are you generous because... That which is yours is all the Lord's anyways. So why not be generous with that which isn't yours? Is it possible that, that God is giving you more right now, not because he wants you to storm over, because he wants to do more for his kingdom? I ain't talk about money. It gets real quiet in here. So what do we do in plenty? We do the exact same thing we do in the pit church. It doesn't change. That's, I think that's the key. The, the, the character of Joseph seems to be the same in the pit as it does in his position of power. And very few of you are going to go from a dungeon sold into slavery into like second, like VP of the United States or behind the Queen of Britain. I don't even know how that works, right? Like you're not going to be the, you're not going to be the second in charge. Very few of us are going to have that, but you will come from the pit and put yourself down on the two rock. Your Lord will pick you up and say, I've got you. I've redeemed this in you. Are you going to walk with him through the redemption he's bringing you this side of the resurrection when all things will be redeemed? It doesn't change, church. They do the same thing. I'll give you two things we can do. There's probably a thousand. I'm just going to give you two, okay, for time's sake. The first one is, is Matthew 6, 33. It says this, Jesus speaking. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Joseph sought to do the Lord's work in affliction. Did you notice that over and over and over again, we saw people saying, I see the Lord's hand on him. We see that everything he touches thrives. So in his slavery, in his affliction, he sought to do the Lord's work. What does he do right when he steps out into position? He hits the ground running. It says right then he went through all the land, striving through to look at everything. So we see that he, he, he does the Lord's work when he's in plenty. This, this scripture is so wonderful. It's, it's talking about specifically people that Gentiles at this time that were struggling or worried about whether they're going to eat or have clothing, like essential needs. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Disciples are to seek as their first priority, not the things they would like to have or even the things that they are sure they need, but God's kingdom and righteousness. So first does not here mean first in time. It's not like, cool, I can serve this first in time and then move on. No, 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 but first in importance. 
Church is, is God's kingdom, is his rule, his people, in his place, under his rule, your first of importance in your life or has relationships or retirement or housing or friends or ministry or anything else taken place of the kingdom purposes that God has you here for. The kingdom is not one among many competing aims for the disciples, but that which comes first of all. That's what Jesus is saying here. It means that this is, this, is the, this is our purpose. Why are you going to school? To do kingdom work. Why are you marrying? To, to do kingdom work. Why are you doing, why are you having children? To do kingdom work. Do, do you see how this, like it's, it's of the first most important, like, like there's nothing that comes in place of this. The kingdom of God is the first thing we are to seek. He goes on and says, um, so, I'm sorry, Jesus is clearly saying that the disciples' first and best effort is to be directed towards God's kingdom, not any personal needs. The kingdom has both present and future significance. It's important for us to remember that kingdom points to true rule and the expression is to be understood in terms of doing the will of God now as well as looking for the coming of his final kingdom. So what this means is we are to be constantly seeking to do the thing that God wills as to be submissive to our king. See, Jesus has inaugurated, inaugurated his kingdom at the cross, so he's our king. So we submit our lives to him. When we say, when we say uh, we're followers of Jesus, that means that we are submitted to his purposes, his will, his work, not ours. Uh, I want to just say this part about righteousness before we move on, but a scholar said it this way, so I'm just going to read it. It says, in this context, seeking God's righteousness, not our righteousness, will mean seeking that righteousness which God only can give. There is no thought that the believer by his own efforts can attain a righteousness that may fitly be called God's. This will include the right standing before God that comes about as the result of Christ's saving work. It is God's righteousness that disciples must seek. And then Jesus says, all these things will be given or will be added to you. What is he saying? He's saying, look, don't worry about what you're going to eat. You don't need to be anxious in anything. You don't have to because, because you're supposed to be busy doing kingdom works and God will take care of those needs. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what you want and he knows what of your wants are not aligned with his kingdom purposes that he will never give you. God knows what you need, what you want, and when it should be given. He cares deeply about you. And in his caring, sanctifying work, he is trying to make you more and more and more like Jesus. And that may mean some of the wants and some of the needs you believe you need aren't going to come. So seek first his kingdom. It should never be second. His kingdom is before our desires of everything. So when we have more money, we seek his kingdom. When we have more time, we seek his kingdom. When we have less time, we seek his kingdom. When we have less money, we seek his kingdom. The art of, of living a life that is true to what God is, do, is doing, a part of his story, is to, regardless of our circumstances, seek his kingdom purposes. Church, that's the, that's the first thing we can do. Second thing, um, that we see Joseph do, and I think this is something that we can all do as well, is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. See, I think where we go awry here is, is what this Proverbs is telling us, is not to trust in ourselves. Like Joseph didn't say, I have forgotten my sorrows, so I will trust in myself. I have made myself fruitful. No, he says, God 
God has removed bitterness from me. God has brought about fruitfulness in me. So stop trusting in ourselves. Trust in him. And stop trying to understand sometimes things that you just may never understand. Because we're not looking for our own understanding, we're looking for his. We're to acknowledge him. That means to give him everything in our life. And he will make our path straight. Joseph embodies and shows us, again, don't idolize it in Joseph because it's God in Joseph, shows what it means to lean on his understanding. Why, why don't we have more chapters of just like, why don't we have some more psalms from Joseph in the pit? Why, God, why? Because God in Joseph somehow made it so that he could do what he's doing and not be a whiny baby like I would have been. Because Joseph, whether it was an affliction I'm in, a, I'm in a dungeon, I'm in a pit. Oh, but good news, Joseph, you get to be top servant in the, in the dungeon. Yay. Joseph does. He works hard. He, he cares for people that are in there, asks them why their faces are so sad. Joseph worked tirelessly there. And then the first thing he does after Pharaoh parades him around the land in a second chariot is he hits the ground running and travels all through Egypt to start planning for the years of plenty that come. The seven years of plenty that occurred, verse 53 says this, in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. So what is he saying here? He's saying, look, the people took suit. People followed suit and saw that the Pharaoh was storing up the stuff. So people actually had stored. So even when the rest of the world was starving, there was still bread in most of the homes. Well, then the bread, the bread dried up. So the people cried to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, go to Joseph and do what he says. See, Joseph doesn't seem to try to have it all figured out on his own. He just seems to be doing kingdom work at the time that God has him and the places that God has him. Church, we should be doing that too. We should be looking for his understanding giving all of our acknowledgments to him, <laughs> leaning on his wisdom, trusting him to make our path straight, not securing our future, leveraging our situations to make the most of it for us. The scholar says it this way, I just think it, it covers it really well. He says, this is the supreme lesson which meets and impresses us at every stage of Joseph's history. In adversity, he trusted his God and waited on God's timing. In prosperity, he leaned upon his God and found his grace sufficient. And thus, the balance was preserved. His heart was not tried by humiliation, nor his head turned by exaltation. Let me read that again. His heart was not tried by humiliation, nor his head turned by exaltation. When the Lord exalts his servants to positions of importance, it is because he has prepared them by discipline. In moments which appeal to human pride and self-sufficiency, the believer needs nothing less than the divine power to keep him humble, simple, and faithful. And for all this, there is no school like the grace of God. Let us therefore make God real in our daily life and ever put and keep him in the foremost place in all interests and hopes. Let me say that again. Daily life. And ever put and keep him in the foremost place in all our interests and hopes. In darkness or in daytime, let us live in him, and then we shall be enabled to live for him. The darkness may be great and prolonged, but he is our light. 
The sunshine may be fierce and dazzling, but he is sufficient. Whatever our pathway, be it shadowed or bright, he is near, he will keep, and he will make our life strong, sweet, beautiful, fragrant, and blessed. So often we want the plenty without the, pl- without the pit, and that's just not the plan that God has for us. Or, like many of us, we want the plenty all the time, and that, may I just, may I just contend with you, that is the, the resurrection of eternity in your heart, crying for that, because that's when that'll come. You want to experience plenty, it'll come at Jesus' second coming, and it'll make everything the plenty of this world pale compared to it. That's the plenty we were made for, the kingdom of God. So until we meet Jesus face to face and are all resurrected, we are always not going to have enough. So maybe, maybe we can just spend more time seeking his kingdom with whatever we have, regardless of whose view it is on whether or not it is plenty or not. Church, will we seek his kingdom? Will we, will we do it in a way that is true to who you are, where God has you as a part of his story? Not, don't do it like me or Joseph. Do it the way that God has you. Will you press into community? Maybe some of you are here today and you're like, man, I totally have done that. I've always drawn near and my devotions are so rich in suffering and then I bail on him once it gets, gets good. Well, then it's God's grace to keep you in suffering. Draw near to the Lord. And just because you're drawing near to the Lord doesn't mean the suffering will go away because I guarantee Joseph felt that for every one of those 13 years. But he will redeem. The last verse says this. It says, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says you to do. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened, sorry, verse 56, opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Verse 57 gives us that glimmer of hope of that which is not redeemed in Joseph's life, his brothers. They occupy all the other land. So we can see how the the Lord is bringing Joseph's family to Egypt, which ultimately will keep them in Egypt for a very long time until the Exodus. But this is God's work. He's redeeming. He's accomplishing sovereignly his plans in the plenty, in the affliction, in the little, in the, in the lot. He's, he's working. Will, will you, church, with, with me, as we, as we surrender ourselves to the power of the spirit that indwells us when we surrender to Jesus Christ, walk in a manner worthy with which we've been called, which is to live for his kingdom purposes, not just in our attendance or just in our finances, but in every avenue of our life and say, God, whatever is in my life that is distracting me from your kingdom, rip it from me. Put it in the pit if necessary so that I do not trust or rely on anything but your kingdom purposes. Would you have the audacity to to pray that prayer, to ask the Lord to take from you that which is causing you to be distracted from the kingdom purposes that you were created for, saved for, and are made for? before the foundations of this earth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would um, strip us of anything that gets in the way of our, our kingdom purposes. God, I think you can do that in a number of ways. Strip us of our um, hobbies if necessary. Strip us of our politics if necessary. Strip us of our finances, our position, our, our prominence, whatever it may be, our reputation. Strip us of anything that is necessary that is getting in the way of your kingdom purposes. And God, I pray for the hearts of everyone here that 
that is too afraid to say that, God, I pray that you would wreak havoc with their hearts. You'd remind them that, that you, they, they are only breathing if they are yours for the purpose of your kingdom. And you're not done with them yet. And so, Lord, I pray that we be a people that are ferocious about your kingdom, not for our glory, not for our name, not for little church Revolution 22's name, but for Jesus Christ's name alone. So that when people see us, they see you. From the way that we enter into our relationships, from the way that we deal with our finances, from the way that we um, serve you, God, would people see you in all of it and long to be a part of a kingdom, a people of God, in the place of God, with the perfect King of God, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others. Thank you.